All right. So I'm Pastor Michael. We are doing a uh, sermon series on the spiritual disciplines. And the thesis of this sermon series is that the spiritual disciplines are the training regimen for how we run the race of the Christian life. Or to use another metaphor, the spiritual disciplines, they are the food that we need. They are the nutrients we need to take in in order to grow into the full stature of Jesus Christ. It's the Spirit that causes us to grow, but He does it in and through these disciplines, not apart from the, dis- from the disciplines. And today we're going to look at the first and most foundational of the disciplines, which is studying Scripture. And uh, we're going to look at it in three parts. We're going to see why we need it, what does it do to us, and then how do we do it. And here I want to focus on the practical aspects. Um, I'm going to be as practical as I can be, not um, as I usually am. Um, and this will take the bulk of the sermon. So three. here's my outline, three points. Number one, we need scripture in order for us to know God. Number two, we need to meditate on the word so that we might grow in Christ-likeness. And then number three, we're going to look at objections and then practical matters. So let's begin. Number one, um, it's to know God. And here I want to begin by looking at John 17. John 17 is one of, I've said this many times, it's one of the greatest passages in all of the Bible. Alongside of Romans 8, it has some of the deepest theology in all of, of Scripture. If Romans 8 is the Mount Everest of the Bible... Undoubtedly, John 17 is the K2. And uh, what makes John um, really profound is that the dialogue is really, it uses really simple language. Uh, In seminary for first-year Greek students, we often translate the Gospel of John because it uses really simple words. But he's talking about really, he's talking about the deep things of God. And that combination, I think, really makes it profound. So if you could... Um, Turn in your bulletins. We're going to read uh, just a portion of John 17. This is a a prayer um, called, uh, often called Jesus' high priestly prayer where he intercedes for his disciples. Let me read to you verses 6 through 8. I have manifested your name. This is Jesus praying to the Father. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. So, The setting is that Jesus is gathered with his disciples in the upper room. Um, This is the night of his arrest. And so he gives them a final set of teachings. This is John 13 through 16. And then he closes with a prayer. And this is the longest recorded prayer in the New Testament. And it's an amazing prayer. It's the Son speaking to the Father, and he's encouraging his disciples. And I really wish we had the time to just sit, to soak in this prayer, because 
Jesus talks about the unity of all believers. He talks about our relationship to an unbelieving world. He talks about the, the inner life of the Trinity, the essence of who God is. He talks about our union with God, that we are one with Him. All these incredible life-giving doctrines. But let me just focus on one point, which is that we can know God through His words, through his son. Let me read to you from uh, verse 8 again. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me, so that we know that Jesus came from the Father, not just that He was sent from the Father like a prophet, but that He came from the very life of the Father. How do we know this? Because He gives us the very words of God. Because it is through God's words that we have access to Him, that we can have a relationship with Him. This is how all relationships work, right? You cannot love someone, you cannot know someone unless you have access to their words, unless there are words that are exchanged. And those words have been given to us through Jesus. In fact, John 1, 1 tells us that uh, Jesus is himself the Word of God. In the beginning was the Word. He is the Logos in human flesh. So some people say, okay, it's the words of Jesus. That's what's important. That's what's special I, uh, I had a friend in high school who would only read the red letters, uh, the red letter words of the Bible. Do you guys know what I'm talking about? There are certain printed editions of the Bible where Jesus' portion of the dialogue is printed in red and then the rest of the text is in black. And so she would um, only read the red letters and then the rest of the New Testament she would regard with you know, suspicion and mistrust, and she thought of them as mere human writings. She thought of, thought of it as, you know, just the opinions of the apostles. The problem with that logic, of course, is that even the red letters come from the apostles. We have to remember that Jesus did not write down any portion of the New Testament himself. But the New Testament was written entirely by the apostles, or more accurately, the apostolic circle. And we can trust the apostles. Why? Because Jesus commissioned them for that specific task. In John 20, 21, remember we looked at this a few weeks ago, Jesus says to his disciples, as the Father has sent me, and what that means is as the Father has given me authority, as he has commissioned me, even so, there's a parallel here, I am sending you. And then in the text, it says that he breathed on them and he said, receive the Holy Spirit. So that it's not just the apostles writing, but it's the Spirit of God working in them. And therefore, hear me now, the apostles' teachings are the teachings of Christ. All of the New Testament, including the black texts, all of the, two, all of the New Testament, the epistles, the, 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 the gospel narratives, they are all the very words of Jesus. People say, well, then what do we do about the Old Testament? 
Well, Jesus, in his ministry, he repeatedly affirmed the Old Testament as the word of God. John 10.35, Jesus said, The scriptures, speaking of the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, cannot be broken. Matthew 5.18, Jesus said, Not a jot and tittle of the law, again, referring to the Old Testament, will be done away with. And so all of the Bible, both Old and New Testaments, are the word of God. 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is God-breathed. So, what does that matter? Why does this matter? The deepest question of human existence is how can we know God? How can we know that He exists? And if He exists, how can we have a relationship with Him? And the answer of the Bible is that God has not hidden Himself. He has not shrouded himself in darkness, but in the scriptures we hear, listen to me, the very words of God speaking to us. Paul in Acts 17 verse 27, he's speaking before the Athenian council, Athenian philosophers. He said, God is not far from us, but he is near. If only we will seek him. I remember years ago, one of my boys, Judah, He asked me very seriously, he said, Daddy, how can I know that Jesus is really God? How do I know that he's not just some made-up character in a fairy tale? And I answered him, I said, you can meet him in in the Bible. When you read the Bible you can feel the realness of His presence because of the Holy Spirit. Because the Bible is not just mere human words, it's not just mythological stories about Jesus, but in a very profound way, He's in the text, He's in the story, and I told Judah, you can go and meet Him there when you read the Bible. And so that's the first point. Scripture is how we have a living and vital relationship with Jesus. There's no other way. The only way is if we read the Word. So that leads me to my second point. Um, We have to meditate on the Word. So let's read Psalm 119. Psalm 119 is the longest of the Psalms. It's actually the longest chapter in the Bible, 176 verses. And it's in, in the entire psalm is a, is a meditation on Scripture, on its attributes, on our relationship to it. And every verse has a different word for the Bible. You know, it's called commandments, statutes, precepts, testimonies. So let me read to you, it's in your bulletin, verses 10 through 17. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord, teach me your statutes. With my lips I declare all the rules of your mouth. In the way of your testimonies I delight as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. Deal bountifully with your servant that I may live and keep your word. So how do we read the Bible? When you look at Psalm 119, you notice right away how intense it is. 
It's not just glancing or skimming. It's not just, you know, the way we read so many other things in our lives, which is fine. You know, not everything deserves careful attention. But the psalmist says in verse 10, listen, with my whole heart, I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. The psalmist goes on. We are to delight in the word. We are to fix our eyes on it. We are to store it up in our hearts. And then in verse 15, he says that we are to meditate on it. Meditate is a significant word. It comes up repeatedly in Psalm 119. And it's really interesting. It describes the noise that an animal makes when it's eating. You know, sort of like an, uh, imagine a lion gnawing on a bone. And for humans, it literally means to mutter. It's what you do when you're talking to yourself. And when it's used with the Bible, it means deep inward reflection on the text. It indicates deep thinking, deep reflection on the meaning of what is written. This is what the psalmist means when he says, I have stored up your word in my heart. I like the way other translations put it. I have hid your word in my heart. This is not just superficial reading. But to hide means that you study it, you memorize, right? It's an intensive activity. And when you do that in a sustained way, over a long period of time, it begins to shape you. It begins to change the way that you think. It begins to change, you know, what you value, what you desire. It becomes a controlling power in your life so that even when you're not actually reading it, you're thinking about it. And even when you're not actively thinking about it, at a subconscious level, it's directing the course of your life. This is why the psalmist says, I have stored up your word in my heart so that I might not sin against you. Where does godliness come from? Listen to me. Godly character is not these specific, discrete moments where you encounter an ethical decision, you know, should I lie or should I tell the truth in this situation? Um, I wonder if I should be generous or if I should be stingy with my money in this circumstance. It's not these obvious situations where you get to weigh the morality, you know, you consult the Bible, you deliberate, and then you decide... That's not how life works. Instead, 99% of your life, psychologists will tell you, 99.9% of your life are these micro decisions that are just automatic, that are going on at the subconscious level. And therefore, it is the intuitive, instinctual habits of the heart that ultimately direct the course of your life. It's the spiritual rhythms that you inhabit. It's what you meditate on. And everyone is meditating on something, whether you realize it or not. It is what you meditate on that ultimately determines your character. The question is not, therefore, whether you're being shaped. Everyone, everyone is being shaped by what they read, what they listen to, what they look at. The real question is, is that an intentional decision on your part? 
Do you understand that spiritual formation is happening in your life? Because the default position, right? If you just do nothing, if you're just sort of passively being pulled along, you know, going along with the flow, you are going to be shaped by the culture, of course. Because we are surrounded, right? We are saturated by modern culture. And, you know, listen, you know, there's not everything in culture is bad. Because of common grace, there's good things in culture. There's things that we can appreciate. There's things that we can learn from, of course, and interact and engage with. But remember what Jesus taught us. The world is fundamentally at enmity with God and therefore our culture fundamentally is an unbelieving culture, a culture that does not fear God. And therefore it takes no effort to just be shaped by the culture. All you have to do is breathe. All you have to do is exist and you'll be shaped by the culture. The only way to be shaped by God is you have to be immersed in His Word. You have to develop a lifelong habit of reading the Bible, of meditating on the scriptures. And just like sports training, it's about muscle memory. It's about conditioning your heart and your mind through repetition and practice. This is why Paul says, train yourself for godliness. It's about training. It's not just about good intentions. My uh, favorite example of the value of training is the story of Chesley Sullenberger. I've shared this story before. He's the pilot who landed the passenger plane on the Hudson River. River. I don't know if you remember this. It happened about 10 years ago. And what happened is that um, his plane took off from LaGuardia Airport and about two minutes into liftoff or takeoff, he ran into a flock of birds. And some of the birds got sucked into the jet engines, what, what is known as a bird strike, and it cut out both engines. He completely lost thrust. This was about 3,000 feet above Manhattan, New York City, and he began to have a descent glide. And he had to somehow figure out how to land the plane, and he didn't have enough thrust to get back to the airport, so he decided to land the plane on the river. And did you know that from beginning to end, he had 90 seconds to pull this off? 90 seconds. And he didn't have time to read, consult a flight manual, flip through the pages, look at the index. He didn't have time to get step-by-step instructions from the control tower. But because he had 30 years of commercial flight experience, because he was a flight instructor, because he was an aviation safety expert and consultant, he was able to do it. And a few days later, he was interviewed by Katie Couric, and she asked him, how did you do this? How did you pull this off? And I love his answer. This is what he said. He said for 42 years, he was in the Air Force before he became a commercial pilot. For 42 years, I've been making small, regular deposits in this bank of experience, education, and training. And on January 15th, the balance was sufficient so that I could make a very large withdrawal. You see, Sullenberger, all of his life, he had been meditating on piloting so that in the moment of crisis, he was ready. And he was able to save 155 lives. Not a single person was lost. I want you to know there are no shortcuts to godliness, only lifelong training. 
There is no such thing as passive sanctification, only a life habit of studying and meditating on the scriptures can you grow into the likeness, into the stature of Jesus Christ. That leads me to my third point, objections and practical matters. And here I want to be really practical, okay? And I want to give you some practical counsel and I want to do it by answering three common objections that I hear all the time, okay? So the first objection that people often make is, I don't have time to read the Bible. I don't have time to read the Bible. My life is so busy. And I want to be... I want to be gentle in my answer, but I want you to know that if you don't have time to read the Bible, then I'm sorry, you don't have time to be a Christian. And ultimately, it's not a time of, it's not a problem of time, it's a problem of belief. Because you will always give your time to what you believe gives you life and joy. And so the question that you have to ultimately ask is, do I really believe that the Bible is life-giving, that without it, my spiritual life will perish. One of the most terrifying of Jesus' parables, I think, is the parable of the sower. If you read the parable of the sower and really let the message sink in, it is absolutely terrifying. In the story, Jesus tells of a farmer who is casting seed on the ground And Jesus says the seed represents the message of the gospel. And the seed falls on all different kinds of soils. And except for the seed that falls on the the hard path where the seed doesn't even penetrate, all the different soils receive the seed, they absorb it, and this little life, this little plant emerges from the soil. And what Jesus is telling us is that For a lot of people, the gospel message is attractive. Many people are drawn to it. Many people like what they hear. And there's this initial burst of joy and belief. But that spiritual life is fragile. And it has to persevere and grow. And what happens in the story is that the seeds that fall in the thin, rocky soil... And then the seeds that fall in the soil with thorns, the plant emerges, but it eventually dies. And Jesus goes on to say that it's the busyness of life. It's the pressures and the cares of this world that chokes out the life. Think about the parable, right? Three out of the four, and I'm not saying that's the actual percentages, right? But three out of the four soils ends up with no life. This is a warning. Do not presume that your faith can survive without constant nourishment, without constant intake of the word. Let me here give you some practical advice. For a lot of people, they start with good intentions, but they don't follow through. Because it's not just about willpower. You can't just rely on yourself to pick up the Bible whenever you feel like it because you will fail. There has to be a plan. And so let me propose a plan. I want you to pick a time in the day 
and the ideal time is when you have peak energy. Do you guys understand what I'm talking about? You know, everybody has a time in the day when they have the most energy, right? Some people are morning people, some people are night owls, and you give that time to God so that you give your best to God, not your leftovers. And then I want you to set up a Bible reading station in your home. It could be the kitchen table, it could be your desk, your favorite couch. And then every day, set up your Bible reading station. In psychology, this is called priming, right? Set it up so it's waiting for you. And your Bible reading station should consist of your Bible, a journal or a study guide, and a pen. And the, re- the purpose of the journal is to keep notes because you're actively reading. You're writing down observations, insights, applications, and this is very important. When you're reading the Bible, put your phone away. Don't just turn off notifications and put it next to you. Literally put the phone in another room and then close the door so that there's no distractions. And I want you to know that if you are not in the practice of reading your Bible, it is hard at first. It is going to be difficult to concentrate. And it is going to seem like for a long time, you're not getting very much out of it. You guys remember in my last sermon, I talked about the valley of disappointment. We expect in any new habit that we'll experience this very neat linear progression of results. But actually for most habits, there's very little results at the beginning and it's only much later in time that we began to reap these, the fruits, the benefits of it. And that, that gap, that period of gap is called the valley of disappointment. You have to persevere through it. And then let me give you a very modest goal. I would like you to read just five minutes a day. Everyone can do that. Read the Bible for five minutes a day, every day, for a week, and then the next week, I want you to read six minutes a day. And I want you to incrementally increase the time slowly until you reach 20 to 30 minutes a day. That's your goal. I know that 20 minutes seems like a long time. But please hear me. If all you're doing is reading two to three minute snippets, two to three minute devotionals, if you're using a verse a day calendar, then you are going to be stuck at a superficial level. You will never truly dig into the meat and the meaning of what the Bible is saying to you. One of my favorite illustrations for this is a story that Tim Keller tells. Tim Keller is, you know, basically my theological hero. He's a pastor in New York City. And he tells this illustration that when he was a young man, he attended a class and the Bible teacher, she told the students to sit down with a text and she gave them Mark 117, which says, where Jesus says, come and follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And she says, I want you to take that one verse and I want you to write down at least 50 things that you see in the text. And then she said, I want you to spend 30 minutes doing this. And I don't want you to think that after 10 minutes, you have it figured out. That's why I'm asking you to write 50 different things that you've learned, that you've drawn from the text, because after 10 minutes, you're going to be sure that you've seen it all but I want you to keep going. 
Tim Keller says that she was absolutely right. It was almost agony. He says, after five minutes, he said, I got it. After 10 minutes, he was certain there was nothing left to see. But he kept pressing and pressing. And then when she came back, she asked everyone to share the number one life-changing truth that they learned from the text. And he says he never forgot this experience. She wrote down what everyone said on a whiteboard. And then she said, okay, how many of you found the most incredible, life-transforming, life-changing truth in the first five minutes? Nobody raised their hand. She said, how many of you found this in the first 10 minutes? Nobody raised their hand. How about the first 15 minutes? Again, nobody raised their hand. How about the first 20 minutes? A few hands started to rise. She said, how many of you found the most incredible life-changing truth in the last 10 minutes, between 20 and 30 minutes of meditating and studying this text? The rest of the class raised their hand. Tim Keller said he never forgot that lesson. I want you to listen to me. Reading the Bible takes time. It takes time to really meditate and digest and understand what it is you're reading. And I know, I know that many of you are just skimming on the surface. You're just skimming on the surface and then you're wondering why you get so little little out of it. And the reason is because you're doing it on the cheap. The only way that you could extract what God has to say for you in a deep way is to really invest the time and the energy. There are no shortcuts to this. My prayer, my fervent prayer, is that our congregation would be filled with passionate lovers of the Bible. My prayers that our church would be known that we would have a reputation for this for our deep love of the scriptures that we would build this thick culture of studying the bible and when we do that when we do it collectively as a community i promise you it will change us it will transform us as a church it's impossible for it not to The second point, so the first objection is, I don't have time. The second objection is, reading the Bible is so boring. It's so boring. And here, let me sympathize with you. There are large stretches of the Bible that are difficult to read. For me, significant sections of the prophets are difficult because there's a lot of obscure imagery and Um, geographic references that you may not necessarily be familiar with. Other people feel, other people, you know, read the holiness codes or, um, you know, the descriptions of the festivals and the construction of the tabernacle. It feels tedious. So here, let me give you some advice. My first counsel is you have to persevere. Every life-changing habit takes time to develop. And you're not going to be good at it at first. 
And you know, a lot of people, they start with this burst of enthusiasm. It happens a lot for New Year's resolutions. But then they're not able to persevere. They get discouraged and they give up. And so this is why, and what I'm about to say is going to be controversial. It's almost heretical for me to say this as a pastor, okay? But um, this is why I'm not a huge fan of those read-through-the-Bible-in-a-year reading plans. The reason, I'm not saying it's wrong, but the reason is, in order to read through the Bible in, a, in one year, you basically have to read four chapters a day, every day. And for most people who are not experienced and seasoned in reading the Bible, four chapters a day, will you will get overwhelmed. And then you fall behind, and then you feel really guilty about falling behind, and then you try to catch up, and you're rushing through the chapters, you're reading 10 chapters a day, 15 chapters at a stretch, uh, to, to get back on track, and then you're not really understanding, you're just trying to finish the chapters, and then it truly becomes drudgery. So I recommend an incremental approach. As I said before, just start with five minutes a day. Five minutes a day, and then gradually increase the time. Because before you can improve a habit, you have to establish that habit. And then don't rush. The goal is not to read as many chapters as you can. The goal is not quantity. The goal is understanding. If you can read one chapter a day, that is excellent. Because again, remember, you're meditating on the scriptures. You're looking at cross-references. You're really studying the text. And my other advice to deal with boredom is read the Bible with other people. The chances of keeping up a new habit greatly increase if you have a partner. In the illustration I gave uh, in, the, in the last sermon, if you're training for the marathon and you have a running partner, your odds of success skyrocket. I don't know what it is, but when you run with a running partner, it like magically takes away 80% of the pain and you could run twice as long. And so I strongly suggest forming an accountability group. Get together with two or three other brothers or sisters and then every day text each other one insight that you got from your Bible reading and then encourage each other, cheer each other on. And then even better than that is to be part of a discipleship group. In your discipleship group, you should be reading and studying the Bible together. And then more than that, you're pressing into each other. You're living the Christian life together. You're, you're, you're working out your idols and, and sin issues together. So read the Bible with others. And then let me also say, read the Bible for others. Nothing will revitalize and infuse meaning into your Bible reading than when you're doing it for others. And you can do this by being part of a discipleship group. You could do this by leading a Bible study in your community group or do evangelism. We're going to talk about this at the very end of the spiritual disciplines. But if you have a friend, if you have a family member that you are evangelizing to, they are going to come back with questions objections and then you're not going to know the answer and so what is that going to do that's going to drive you back into the scriptures and you're studying because you want to be able to give beautiful winsome answers to your friends or get involved in ministry you know when we get back together when we start gathering as a church again 
volunteer for children's ministry, volunteer for youth ministry, because in order to teach them, you should you should have something to teach. You should you should be in the Word all the every day for the week. So the 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 two objections so far is I don't have time. It's too boring. And then the third objection is reading the Bible is too hard. It's too hard. And here I want to acknowledge this point. In order to read the Bible well, it's going to require some study. If you want to get beyond the superficial, you're going to have to understand some of the historical background. You're going to have to understand a little bit of how genres work because Hebrew uh, poetry is very different than epistles, which is very different than narratives. And you're going to have to have a growing understanding of theology, systematic theology, biblical theology. And I'm not going to lie. It's going to take work. It's going to take effort. It's going to require some additional reading. And it's not going to be easy. But here's my response. I want you to know that every worthwhile endeavor in your life takes work. It requires hard work. I bet you, if I were to go to your workplace tomorrow, where everyone's working at home, but imagine when you were back when you were working <laughs> um, on site, if I were to go to your workplace, I bet you I would see you reading documents, looking at technical material that is just way beyond me. And I would say to you, whoa, how are you able to, let me try. And so I would get into your workstation and I would try to do what you're doing. And I would say, this is complete, I can't make heads or tails of it. And what would you say to me? You would say, listen, Pastor Michael, I didn't get here overnight. I put in the work. I went through the training it took me many, many years of practice and discipline to get to where I am. I didn't just do this overnight. And I would say to you, exactly. I know everyone in this park and everyone at home, you are capable of incredible discipline and training. And because you were driven by a goal, you succeeded in your career. Good for you. Now make it your goal to know the Bible. Make it your goal to be a passionate lover of Scripture. Listen, your job has a lot of value. And I'm glad that you're good at it. I'm glad that you put in all that training and practice into it. But listen to me, knowing Christ in Scripture doesn't just have some value. It has infinite value. It is worth your best energies. It is worth a lifetime of practice and training and devotion. Let me here give you some recommended resources because there are some wonderful, wonderful study guides, books to, ha- to help us to read the Bible. There are really excellent Bible studies being written every year. They're being published. Um, let me give you some of my favorite authors. Um, Jen Wilkin has written a series of really fantastic Bible studies. I, I really love her as a Bible teacher. She has a podcast as well that I listen to all the time. Um, Kathleen Nielsen has written a series of uh, Bible studies that are really excellent and well done. 
I recommend uh, the, the Good Book Company. It's a British uh, Bible teaching ministry. They have study guides, multiple study guides for every book of the Bible, as well as thematic studies, you know, written by really fantastic teachers like Tim Chester, Tim Keller. In addition to that, and by the way, you don't have to jot this down really quickly. I will give you this list of resources in the next newsletter. But in addition to this, I really recommend that you read a survey book to give you a, the big picture of the Bible. A, good, a really good one is even better than Eden by Nancy Guthrie. I love Nancy Guthrie. She's a fantastic Bible teacher. I listen to her podcast all the time. Another excellent one is God's Big Picture by Vaughn Roberts. He basically, in a very simple way, he takes these themes in the Bible and shows you how they're woven all throughout Scripture. I also recommend the theology articles written um, that's available on the Gospel Coalition website. These articles are superbly written. They're written, they're, they're, they're meant to be read in about four or five minutes. They're written at the lay level, so you don't need specialized training to understand. And so any question that you have, just type into Google Gospel Coalition and then, and then write out your question. You know, what is justification? What, are, what is the apocrypha? There's like a dozen articles on any question you could possibly ask. Let me close with the final word of admonishment. I want you to know that we have no idea. We have no idea how richly blessed we are with resources to study the Bible. We have so many excellent Bible teachers. There are incredible podcasts, dozens and dozens of podcasts that you can listen to. We have study Bibles. This is incredible to me. With incredibly well-researched notes, I really recommend the ESV study Bible. We have over a dozen different translations of the Bible in the English language. We have so many translations that we can group them by translation strategy, right? There are word-for-word translations like the NASB and ESV. There's phrase-for-phrase like the NIV. There are sort of loose paraphrases that are written in contemporary English like the Message, um, the uh, New Living Translation. We have no idea. I want you to know there are tribal peoples. There are indigenous people groups in the world that still do not have the Bible in their own language. And the only way that they could read the Bible is they have to have somebody else read the Bible in another language and then simultaneously translate it for them. That's how they, that's how they have access to God's Word. We have no idea how blessed we are. A memory that I will never forget is that when I was in college, I went on a missions trip to Uganda. And there was a seminary, seminary there that was training pastors for the ministry. And the student body came from the whole you know, surrounding region, not only from Uganda. There were uh, refugees from southern Sudan. There were students from Rwanda and Burundi. And for virtually all the students, English was their second or third language, right? It was not their primary language. And so 
they were not comfortable. This, you know, this wasn't the language of their natural competency, but they were at the seminary studying in English because that's, that's the resources that they had. And so I went to the seminary to volunteer and help. I went there for the summer. And um, the missionary told me, you know, Michael, you're studying at an American university. You know, why don't you teach a seminar? Why don't you, you know, impart some help, helpful lessons to the students? And so he said, what are you studying? And I said, well, I'm a history major. He said, great. You know, what are some of the classes that you've taken? And I took some advanced coursework um, on South African history. He said, fantastic. Why don't you teach a seminar, a brief seminar on African history? And I said, okay, I think I'll try. And so that whole semester, I really studied and prepared. I bought a textbook on general African history. I poured through um, additional books. I prepared my lecture notes. And then for two weeks that summer, I lectured every day this, for this seminar. And I would use this textbook, you know, and I would pass it around the students so they could see all the maps and pictures and diagrams as I would, you know, go through the various chapters. I remember that the students were so amazed by this book. They had never seen a book like this. And then after class, they would, they would, hunch over, they would gather over around this book and they would just flip through the pages, you know, and read the book because they were so amazed, they were so fascinated by it. And at the end of my time there, some of the students came to me and they said, Teacher Michael, would you be willing to leave this book here with us? They had this little seminary library with just a few hundred volumes, this really small library. You know, many of the students were poor, you know, they, they didn't have very much. They, they only had their own Bible and maybe one or two other books. So the seminary library was the only resource that they had to read books and to, to learn. And they said, would you consider donating this textbook to the seminary library? And I said to them, I said, no, I'm sorry. This is my book. I had bought the book, you know, with my own money. It was, I remember it was like $50, which was a lot of money for me back when I was in uh, college. And I had spent so much time, you know, reading it and, you know, writing down notes from it. And so I said, I'm really sorry, but I can't, this is my book. And then I brought it back with me on the flight home. And it's sitting in my bookshelf. And in the last 20 years, I've touched it maybe, I don't know, three or four times. But to this day, I regret, I regret not leaving the book there. Because I have so many books in my home. It's kind of gross. <laughs> I have thousands of books in my home. But the seminary library, they had so few books. And the students, they were so eager to learn. They were so hungry for knowledge. I want you to know that as American Christians, we are so richly blessed with incredible resources to study and to understand the Bible. There is no excuse. 
God has given us every opportunity to know him in his word. Let's pray. Almighty God, you said in Isaiah, as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater, so is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. Almighty God, you promised life and joy in your word. But so often we have disregarded it. We ignore it. We think little of it. We keep it at the periphery of our life. We do not think of it as sweeter than honey, more precious than gold. And so no wonder we are spiritually dry and dead. Revive us, O Lord. Give us a willing heart. Give us strong structures and accountability and a community to read the Bible together, to meditate on it, so that in the Word, we would find you. We would have a a love relationship with you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.